And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and make your way to Acts chapter five right now. And while you do that, I wanna recap for you what happens at the end of four. Because in the midst of this radical unity, Luke tells us about one specific guy. Joseph is his name, but only for a little bit. And see, Joseph is wealthy enough to own some land. And so he sells a piece of property and then takes all of that money and gives it all to the church so that they can care for the, those, who, need, those are in, who are in need among them. It's an amazing gift of generosity. And then the next thing Luke tells us is that he gets a new nickname. Not so much a new nickname, but like his name is actually changed from Joseph to Barnabas. And Luke tells us specifically that Barnabas means son of encouragement. But here's what we need to understand about names all throughout the Bible. They carry immense meaning. All throughout the Old Testament, we see people naming their children specific things after the attributes of God or after their current conditions. But we also see people's names changed. And whenever we see somebody's names changed, it's always for a very specific reason. And so we see this with Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. We see it in the New Testament as Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. And we'll see it in a few weeks as Saul's name is changed to Paul. Here's the thing about names all throughout the Bible. They encompassed a person's character. And oftentimes when their name is changed, it encompassed their calling as well. So I think it's safe for us to assume that Barnabas was not just Mr. Positivity and went around like slapping everybody on the back and encouraging everyone. I think what Luke is trying to tell us here is that after a consistent display of his character and integrity and his support for the whole church, the whole body of believers that the spirit led the apostles to say, hey, this guy's gonna have a part to play in the expansion of God's church. And so his name is changed. And that all matters because of what we see happen next. So beginning in chapter, uh, Acts 5, verse one, Luke writes, now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men, uh, then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And at the reading of God's word, all his people said, yikes right? Like we don't like this story. And I'm going to be honest, I was telling somebody between services, if I had the whole book of Acts to choose to teach from, this is the one part I wouldn't choose because we don't like this story. It makes us really uncomfortable to think about the fact that God would strike a married couple dead while they're in church. 
And I want you to hear me clearly say, this should make us uncomfortable because it forces us to ask questions about what we think about God. And we start asking things like, yeah, but doesn't God love everybody? And wasn't Jesus sacrifice enough to cover any sin? And the answer to both of those is a resounding yes. God is a God of immeasurable love and Jesus' willing sacrifice is enough to cover any sin that you can possibly imagine. But what we need to understand is that at this point in history, what most scholars say about, about this story is that essentially they liken this to God protecting his bride on their honeymoon. And I think the reason God does that is because if we read this story in the context of the entire Bible, we realize that this has happened before. And just like in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit shows up and how that's a replay of the events at Mount Sinai, when God gives Moses the law, what we see here in Acts chapter five is a replay of multiple stories from the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter seven, right after Israel enters the promised land and God has defeated Jericho, he gives them specific instructions to not take any plunder, but to absolutely destroy everything. But then there's this one guy, and there's always like one guy, right? Like with this one guy named Achan, sees a robe, he sees some silver, and he sees some gold, and he thinks, you know what? I really like those. And in this instance, he lets his greed get in the way of his obedience. And ultimately, Achan and his entire family die, and everything they own is completely destroyed. But if we push back just a little bit further, we look at Leviticus chapter 10, and in Leviticus chapter 10, we see that God has just given very specific instructions for Aaron and his sons, who were the first priests in Israel, and for how them and every priest after them is to minister before God in his temple, in his very presence. And in Leviticus 10 verse 1, we read that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. And as they disobey and dishonor God in his very presence, Nadab and Abihu die in his very presence. But I think we can push this even a little bit further back to Genesis chapter 3. And you know the story of Genesis chapter 3. We've, we've heard it more times than we can count. It's Adam and Eve when they eat from the tree, the one tree God had commanded them not to. And what we see there is that Adam and Eve are not just walking through the garden one day and think, you know what, I've had enough of this. I'm going to break the one rule that God gave us. What we see there is that they are specifically influenced by the serpent who is Satan. And as a result of breaking the one command that they had given, they are exiled, not just from the garden, but from God's very presence. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is the very first instance of Satan influencing a married couple in order to corrupt God's good creation. And so when Luke writes in chapter 5 that Satan has filled Ananias, he's not suggesting possession, but he's suggesting that Satan has influence over him. And if we're not careful and we don't slow down and we read this story and we don't know this story in the context of the whole story that God is telling throughout the entire Bible, we make this story about the gift that was given and not about the character of Ananias and Sapphira that was shown. You see, Luke makes it abundantly clear 
that Ananias and Sapphira together chose to keep back part of the money they received and then misrepresent what they do give. And he does this by the words that are translated as kept back in the NIV. They carry the idea of skimming off the top, something along the lines of embezzlement. But because the Holy Spirit dwells in the followers of Christ, the place, we become the place where God dwells with his people. And in their pride and in their greed, Ananias and Sapphira dishonored God in his very temple, just like Aaron's two sons. And you see, because God is holy, he cannot dwell in the same place as sin. That's why Adam and Eve were exiled, not just from, the, or that's why they were exiled from the Garden of Eden, where they walked with God. But thanks to the work of Jesus and his willing sacrifice, you and I are able to be made right with God and we are able to live in relationship with him. And we are able to have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwell within us so that we can dwell with God in this life. And I think what the most unsettling part about this whole story with Ananias and Sapphira is, is the fact that I think they would have felt really, really at home in the American church today. And that should make all of us feel really uncomfortable. If that causes a pit in your stomach or if that causes you to squirm in your seat, I want you to know that that's a good thing. Because I think some of us have become a little too comfortable with the fact that God is good and we have forgotten that he is holy and what that means. Now, don't get me wrong. God is beyond good. Like he is the source of all goodness. And we should talk about that. We should teach our children about that. We should sing about that. And we should let that take root in our hearts. And we should praise him for that every single day. It's because of his goodness that he lavishes blessings upon his people. It's because of his goodness that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. And we will never know the full measure of his goodness until we see him face to face. But as good as God is, he is equally holy. And for decades, the American church has spent a lot of time talking about his goodness and the truth of that, but we haven't spent an equal amount of time talking about his holiness and what that actually means. Dr. Richard Lentz puts it this way. He says, the core idea behind holiness is absolute moral purity. God is not only perfectly good, he is the very source and standard of goodness. And when we come to grips with the fact that God is both equally good and holy, that should drive us to a constant posture of worship and awe before him, regardless of what we're doing. You see, we don't just worship when we sing. It's meant to be how we live our lives with a, with a deep reverence for who he is. There's a reason that the author of Proverbs wrote this in chapter 14. Whoever fears the Lord has a, has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. 
See, that fear that's mentioned here in Proverbs is the same fear that gripped the church in Acts chapter 5. It's the idea of deep reverence and respect for who God is. And we hear a lot today about the church seeking revival. And it, but if we want to see revival take place in the church, and I don't just mean Genesis church, I mean the whole body of believers across the entire world, we need to regain a healthy, fearful reverence for the Lord Almighty and his holiness as compared to our sinfulness. And look, if you get nothing else, from this story of Ananias and Sapphira, I want you to get this. God is less concerned with the percentage of your paycheck that you give, and he is entirely concerned with the percentage of your heart that you give to him. And it's because he is both good and holy that your heart is his concern. It wouldn't matter if he was only good. It wouldn't matter how much of your heart you gave to him, but that only leads to spoiled children. And if he was only holy and he wasn't good, then we wouldn't be able to live in relationship with him. We would constantly be kept at an arm's length and we would live in fear of what might happen if we mess up. And regardless of how you interpret the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the fact of the matter is it was a tragedy within the church. It's the first instance of corruption from inside the church that we see. But I think it's important for us to look at how the church as a whole responded to this. And look at verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers who used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Jumping down to verse 16, Luke writes, Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So what did the church do? They carried on. They carried on in obedience to the mission that God had given them. And I don't think they just brushed off what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. I would be willing to bet that there were intentional conversations that happened in the wake of that. But Luke goes, seemingly goes out of his way to remind us of the fact that the church remained obedient and that they let God take care of the rest. And I think there's a lot of wisdom for you and I in what we see the church do right there. Because we live in the age of distractions, right? Like we have overly packed schedules. We live in a culture that seems to be increasingly chaotic. And I think if we look at how the church responded to this uh, tragedy, then we can see ways that we can practically live out what they've done. If we remain focused on obedience to Christ and we remain focused on God, we can trust that he will take care of every other aspect of life. And as the church remained obedient and they continued to reflect Jesus into Jerusalem, they saw the exact same results that they had seen across the first four chapters, right? Like people were being healed, spirits were being, uh, were driven, were being driven out of people and radical unity was taking over. But Luke tells us in verse 17 that jealousy worked into the heart of members of the Sanhedrin. The very same people who had arrested Peter and John in chapter four, once again, are extremely jealous of what they see happening in the temple courts as the apostles are teaching and preaching, Jesus is the Messiah. 
And so once again, the, this ruling Jewish leadership has the apostles arrested, and this time they're thrown in a public jail. And I think there are a couple of things we can safely assume about this public jail and what was happening that night. And I think one of those is the fact that a first century public jail in the Middle East probably had some pretty rough conditions. I highly doubt that Peter and the other apostles were thrown into a room with a bunk bed on one side and a toilet in the corner, right? Like what we see from the rest of the book of Acts, they're most likely chained to a wall inside of their cell. But if we look at what the pattern of the church had been across the first four chapters, we see how important prayer was to them. And spoiler alert, what we see as others are arrested and persecuted later in the book of Acts, prayer remains vitally important when they're in prison. And so I think it's safe for us to assume that Peter and the other apostles were praying and worshiping as they sat chained to a wall. And it's in this setting where we meet our first unexpected helper of chapter five. And so as they're sitting, as they're praying, as they're worshiping, an angel of the Lord shows up in the middle of the night, opens the gate, lets them out of their chains and takes them out of the prison. And he does all this with a very specific message. When they get outside, he says, guys, get back to it. And so what we see in verse 21 is that when Luke says at daybreak, the apostles were back in the temple teaching about Jesus and the resurrection again. Luke is telling us they wasted no time in their obedience to what God was wanting them to do. And so there they are, the very next day, teaching and preaching once again in the temple. And later, as the Sanhedrin starts to meet and they realize, hey, wait a second, those were the guys that we arrested yesterday. They have them dragged into the Sanhedrin. Now, what you need to know about the Sanhedrin is that it's made up mostly of two parties. The Pharisees, who taught strict adherence to Old Testament law and also believed in a coming resurrection of all of God's people. And then the other party were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees didn't believe in any sort of resurrection and they were, co and they were collaborators with Rome. And these two groups didn't really get along. And so in verse 27, this is, or sorry, verse 28, this is what we see the high priest say to Peter and the apostles. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And from there, Peter launches into a similar discourse as he did in chapter four, where he places the blame for Jesus' murder squarely on specific members of the Sanhedrin. And what we see from Peter once again is a holy defiance that comes about through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter makes it abundantly clear that his priority is to be obedient to God and not obedient to men. And it's this kind of holy defiance that will always disrupt the social status quo. And look, if we choose to live this way, if, we, if as followers of Jesus, we choose to be preoccupied with obedience to him rather than obedience to our culture, we'll start to see some things change. And the truth of the matter is that when we are able to live emboldened by the Holy Spirit in such a way, that holy defiance that we see from Peter 
It both reflects God and his character into his creation while simultaneously drawing people into a relationship with God. That's exactly what we see happening right here. But if we lived this way, it's bound to bring opposition. And eventually, it will bring some persecution. Jesus said he came to bring an abundant life, not that he came to bring an easy life. And so... Oh, I just lost my spot. So if we follow Jesus into that abundant life, we need, to, we need to understand and we need to come to grips with the fact that ultimately things are going to get hard and it may lead to exclusion or ridicule from coworkers or from other students. But you have to choose whether or not obedience to Christ is worth the risk of feeling excluded. If it's worth the risk of potentially being ridiculed for who you follow. And turning back to our passage, Luke makes it really clear that what Peter has to say infuriates these specific members of the Sanhedrin, specifically the Sadducees. But in verse 34, we see another unexpected helper show up. In verse 34, we're introduced to a guy named Gamaliel. And Luke writes, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Now, I want to pause right there in just a second and answer this question. Who is Gamaliel, right? Like, it's a really weird name. Sounds a little bit like some character from Lord of the Rings. Um, but honestly, it's, it's Gamaliel. And some of you, if you're like me, if you were born in the 80s, you're probably thinking of this guy. That's Gargamel. Gar Thank you so much. First service, didn't laugh at that very much. But Gargamel is the guy who is constantly chasing the Smurfs. Gamaliel was one of the most well-respected people of his entire day. You see, Gamaliel was a Pharisee, and William Barclay had this to say about him in his commentary on the book of Acts. He wrote, Gamaliel was more than respected. He was loved. He was a kindly man with a far wider tolerance than his fellow Pharisees. And likewise, the Talmud, which is a collection of ancient Jewish uh, sayings and ideas, had this to say about the very same Gamaliel. He said, when Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, regard for the Torah ceased and purity and piety died. Look, what both of these two are saying, these two sources are saying, they're not saying that he was loved because of what he taught but he was loved and he was respected and he was listened to because he was a man of consistent character. And so when he stood up that day in the Sanhedrin, everybody stopped talking and everybody turned and paid attention to what he had to say as he cited recent examples of attempted revolts, two specifically, both of which Rome utterly crushed. And when their leaders died, their followers disbanded. And so with that evidence, he, gives some really wise, he gave some really wise advice to the rest of the Sanhedrin. Look at what he says in verse 38. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And then he drops his microphone and sits back down, right? Like he, he gives this amazing advice very succinctly. Now we have zero evidence that suggests that Gamaliel was secretly or ever became a follower of Jesus. But what we do know is that based on these words, the apostles 
only ended up getting flogged instead of getting murdered, which doesn't always sound like it's that much better. But the fact of the matter is they lived to, see, to preach and to continue to teach another day. And look at what Luke, tell, Luke tells us about the apostles as they left. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name. Peter and the apostles didn't retaliate. They didn't run and they didn't hide. When they left the Sanhedrin, they left worshiping because they knew this day would come. Look what Jesus said in Matthew chapter five. It says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. It sounds a bit ludicrous to think that these apostles would leave rejoicing after being whipped across their chests and their backs to the point of severe bleeding, all because of a name. But let's be honest, this isn't just any name. It's the name that Caiaphas, the high priest, refused to say in verse 28. In verse 28, he only referred to him as this man. Look, names all throughout scripture are extremely important. They carry meaning and they carry significance and they encompass somebody's whole character. And according to Peter in chapter four, there is no other name under heaven, no other, na no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And likewise, the apostle Paul will later write to the church in Philippi that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every other name. Look, Jesus' name is the only name in which we find our hope. It's the only name in which we find the strength to respond to God in obedience. And look, the persecution of the early church was only getting started in Acts chapter five. We have 23 more chapters to go and it's gonna get a lot harder for everyone. But here's what we need to be reminded of. When we follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is working through us, life is going to get hard. And when you're facing opposition or exclusion or maybe even full-on persecution, it's not a sign that you're going in the wrong direction. It's a sign that you're actually following God in the right direction and that you're being effective. Because when you choose to follow Jesus, God doesn't promise you an easy life. He promises the presence of his Spirit in your life. And when it feels like we can't win and it feels like we're up, uh, up against unbeatable odds, the most important thing we can do as followers of Jesus is to abide in Christ. If we're able to abide in Christ, we have everything that we could ever need to carry on with the mission that God has given us as followers of Jesus to make disciples, to reflect his character into his creation. And in this chapter, in all of Acts chapter five, we see really, we see a really bumpy start for the church. Things had been going so well across those first few chapters, but now we have, now we're dealing with internal corruption, while we're also dealing with external persecution. But I think it's really important for us to look at the fact that after both of those instances, Luke tells us exactly how the church responds. In both of those instances, Luke tells us that the church prioritized being obedient to Christ. Look at verse 42. 
Luke writes, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of what people you work with or go to school or school with have to say, about Jesus. The fact of the matter is that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is both good and he is both holy. And it's because he is both good and he is holy that he longs to work through his church. And if we will humble ourselves before God and if we will let the Holy Spirit do his work, Life's going to get a little bumpy. But I believe that if we will chase after the Holy Spirit and we will respond in obedience, we will see a move of God that we could not predict. And we will see unexpected people come to faith. And we can see exactly what we see in the book of Acts. We can see radical unity break out amongst the church. We can see we can see the kingdom come. We can see God bring his new good creation to fruition as he restores all things, as Peter says in Acts 4, through the power of his Holy Spirit. God Almighty, you are holy. And God, we, can't, we cannot come to grips with the holiness that you hold. And so God, I pray right now that over your people, you will give us just a glimpse of how holy you are and how good you are and how you long to work through us. Obedience isn't always easy, but it's always right. And so I pray, God, that that you will fill us with the courage we need to be obedient. You will fill us with the steadfast that we need to abide in your holy and powerful name. The one name that we must be saved by. And that God, when we are up, up against unbeatable odds and it feels as if we are surrounded by darkness, we will see you fight our battles in ways that we, we cannot imagine. And that as a result, we will worship you and we will praise you from a new level of reverence and love for who you are. It is in your precious, perfect, powerful, and holy name that we pray these things. Amen.